Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Thanks for coming out this morning and uh, giving me a chance to share with you a little bit of what uh, some of the things that I struggle with and think about and um, uh, some of my lived experience that speaks into uh, where I kind of land on, on, on trying to uh, understand these challenging aspects of life. Um, things like uh, meaning, as one that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit today, but I think this can be extended to a lot of our spiritual life and a lot of our personal life, right? Things that are paradoxical are commonplace in our lived experience. Things like what is sanctification? How does that work? What is justification for me? And how does grace work? How do I receive grace? And what does that look like in my lived experience? Um, things like the value of me, and, and for that matter, me ascribing value judgments of any type on anything. So I might say it's good. You might find that it's bad. Who wins there? Right? If we all agree that it's good, is that therefore the consensus? And that defines absolute good for that situation? How can we understand and, and wrestle with these, these sort of complexities of life and connect them to our walk spiritually. And so paradoxes are, are things that I, I, I like to kind of dive into because I feel like fundamentally paradoxes are situations, are these concepts, are these things that we struggle with that are deeply seated that we desire to know, we desire to know the meaning of our life. But I'm not going to tell you the meaning of life. Hopefully, if I came up here and told you that I was going to let you know the meaning of life, you'd run me out of the building really quick. Uh, because we also recognize that these are unknowable. Right? So they're unknowable facets of our life. But just because they're unknowable, I don't think, uh, excuses us from sort of pursuing and growing in our understanding of how that applies to us. And so we're going we're gonna to focus in on meaning today. And I'm, I'm going to get off my title slide because as I, when I was practicing this, I used to spend about 30 minutes going through this title slide because there's a lot here. But we're going to move on from the title slide. And I want to jump to um, the first sort of introduction to where I feel or a quote that I feel sort of captures the way I currently view meaning in life. And this quote comes from a uh, 1960s Japanese rice farmer. And during his life, he, he developed a very different way of farming that I'm not gonna, I don't wanna talk about his farming methods, but it's an interesting story. It's actually a fantastic story. So Masanobu Fukioka is his name. Um, and, and he developed what, what came to be known as do nothing farming. And, and do-nothing farming actually has nothing to do with doing nothing. It's a horrible name for the, for the, for the, for the method. But um, in his book that he wrote on this in the 70s called One, One Straw Revolution, there's a quote in there that I think really captures where um, I sort of stand in terms of understanding the meaning. And here's his quote. So, all of human effort is meaningless. Humanity knows nothing at all. 
There is no intrinsic value in anything. And every action is a futile, meaningless effort. <clears throat> what do we think about this? It's clearly not the most So there's a lot of responses that we might have to this, and we could, we, could, we could dig into all these, and I don't want to uh, go too far down the rabbit hole, but just some surface-level responses. And if any of you were like me, being in a room of fairly high-performing men, we'd probably look at this and say, this looks like an excuse for laziness. This is an excuse for doing nothing. Because if it's all meaningless, then what's the point? Why do we engage in any activity? Why do we work at all? Why do we toil? And I don't think that that's true, and I'll speak to that point in just a moment. The second thing we probably see right away is that this looks fairly depressing. This is self-limiting. And we tend to hate quotes that are self-limiting. Right? We, want, we want quotes that build us up, that make us feel more than. We don't enjoy those things that make us feel less than. Right? The quotes that make us feel more than, quotes about love, or prosperity, or health, or long life, or all of these things that we desire, as long as they're pointed at me. right? As long as we're talking about love, we'll do a quote about love. That's great. As long as we're talking about you loving me, yeah, I'm going to slap that on a mug, and I will look at that every day and smile. But what about when we flip that direction? Are we called to be loved? Is that the calling? Or are we called to love? <clears throat> so being loved makes me inflated. It makes me more important than. It makes me more than. And that's the way we like to read that. But what does loving make me? It makes me less than. It makes me insignificant to the significance of those around me. So we don't like to think about things that are depressing. This is sort of self-limiting. Describes us as less than. It is something that we um, uh, tend to respond tend to respond negatively to. It's it's challenging. It impacts us negatively. And the third very very high level thing that we could look at and say about this quote is. You might be wondering, you're like, Lord, this is awesome, but this is some like hippie 1960s Japanese rice farmer. And you should look around a little bit. We're in a church, so what in the world are you doing? And, and I totally agree. Let's go to scripture. All right. I was about to say that, actually. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, you got it. I knew it. I knew it. Summarize, I've never read the Ecclesiastes, you know. So we can, we, can, we can jump into Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes speaks extensively about the lived experience here in this, in this life, right? And so the preacher is describing the lived experience. And, and so we'll take Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Let's go on. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. In case you missed it, all your meaningless days. Just in case you missed the first time this came through. This is your lot in your life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Now throughout Ecclesiastes, there are these descriptions of lived experience that are, the words meaningless here are, are, are the original Hebrew word of Hevel. And Hevel 
is something that the, the, the guys who were in my men's group on Thursday night will, will be cringing about because they've heard this way too many times. But hevel is a word that I think really captures lived experience on this planet. So, so our lived experience on Earth is captured in this word hevel. And, and hevel is translated uh, 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 fairly, fairly crudely in a variety of translations. So we have it in NIV as meaningless. In ESV, in King James Version, it's translated as vanity. Elsewhere, it's translated as vapor. And that word hevel actually captures all of these. These are all parts of what is captured in the idea of hevel and our life, our lived experience as hevel. Um, and, and so we can, we can see these and we could go into a whole, a whole spiel about what, what, the, what, the, what the correct translation is and how to sort of capture all of these ideas in one. But, but we'll, we'll, we'll just move back to saying, all right, so meaningless is por- a part of the component of what is originally intended in God's <laughs> word here at, in Ecclesiastes for our lived experience. And so this discussion of, of our lived experience sort of hopefully explains a little bit of why the quote before was, was part of this. But I want to point out a couple of things that are a little different than, than the extrapolation of what Hevel, what Hevel connects to. So this is something that is to be enjoyed. So enjoy the blessings of your life, all of your meaningless days. Right? And so enjoy that which is good within the context of your meaningless days. And this is your lot in life. This is your portion. And the, the word lot in life, and I, and I actually I have that on my notes. So I don't remember what that word is exactly. But that word describes this is God's award to us. This is a gift, an award that is granted by, a, by God for us in our life. Right? So that's the lot. This is your portion. This is what you have been given as a task in your life by God. And in your toilsome life, in these moments of our life, we are to enjoy those moments, even though they are fundamentally, ultimately, meaningless. So there's this tension, there's this paradox between the enjoyment and the pursuit of toils, the pursuit of your portion, the pursuit of that which you've been awarded, and recognition and the balance of those being meaningless. How do these two ideas work together? We like to think that if we're pursuing things, they're for meaning. We usually ascribe meaning to them. Ecclesiastes speaks, uh, and and the word Hevel shows up uh, extensively throughout Ecclesiastes, but talks about achievement. Achievement is meaningless. It's a great verse for our high-performing group of men. Financial status, meaningless. Another great one for high-performing group of men. And so if all of this is meaningless, why do we do anything? Let's touch on that part first. So why bother doing anything? And, and in response to that, I think it's really important that the scriptural perspective of work is highly contrasting the worldly perspective of work, a bad day of fishing better than a good day of work. It might be true. I like fishing, too. But that's the worldly perspective of work. That's also, if you look at the contemporaries of the, um, of, of the Israelites, so if you look at the Babylonian narratives for work, you see that the same thing holds true. Work is a punishment. Work is something that you're subjected to. 
as a torture. In the scriptural view of work, work is, this is from the very first description of, of God placing the man into the garden. Man had just been created. Nothing more. God hadn't even shown him the garden. There was no rules established by God for his life in the garden. And so here we see what is the initial, the original purpose, the original vision for God, for, from God for mankind in his or her lived experience. And what is that original vision? The purpose of man in the garden was to work and to keep it. That came before don't eat from the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This came before that. There was no rules yet. This is the original purpose. That came be, this comes before God recognizes that man needs a helper. We see that later in Genesis. But this is describing that original purpose of working, of serving and laboring and working in the lived experience and keeping, maintaining, maintaining order in the garden that God had created. A perfect garden, a perfect place, God's good plan for us, involved working and keeping it. That is our calling. That's different than this is a punishment. You have made a mistake, and so now you will be punished with work. We see in Ecclesiastes again that there is nothing better that a person should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. We're supposed to find joy in our toil. The joy of our life is our toil. And I love that scripture uses the word toil. See, for me, work and toil, they're different. Like, I work a lot. But work, when I'm working, those are the things that are easy. You know, I can go to work. I can do a bunch of work. Probably good work. And I come home and I'm like, yeah, did some work. Right. Job, buddy. But then, have you ever come home on those days where you're fried? You walk in the door and you're, you feel like you've been hit with a baseball bat. You're fried physically. You're fried mentally. You're fried emotionally. Those are the days where you weren't working. You were toiling. Toiling is that extra effort. It is the part of work where you have given all of your being. Physically, mentally, emotionally. You have invested in this thing to work it to a level that sort of extends beyond work. That's toil. That's when, in my mind, I feel like God's calling for us to find joy in our work. Joy not just in our work, but joy in our toil. Joy in those days where we're giving all of ourselves. We're giving all of those skills, those abilities that God has given us, we are using them to the fullness of their potential. And, importantly... Our toil is from God. God intended that we would have this. That was his intent for us in this lived experience. And apart from God, who can experience eating or, or drinking or having enjoyment? In Colossians, we find that our work should be heartily. Shouldn't work just to complete the task. And, and, and in Colossians, we also get the description of why we work. 
Do I work for that next promotion? Do I work for that degree? Do I work for my family? Do I work to keep food on the table? Do I work for my employer? Do I work for my country? Who do I work for? Our work is directed towards the Lord. We're doing these things. We're toiling in these activities. We're coming home feeling like we've been run over by a freight train. And that work is not directed towards any of the things that we, we usually ascribe it to. I work because I want to bring home a paycheck. That's a great thing. But guess what? That's not why we should work. That's not why I should be working. I work, and those activities, those moments where I am toiling are directed at the Lord. They're not directed at men, for we are serving the Lord Christ. So from a very young age, and these pictures are a little bit dark, but from a very young age, I had demonstrated for me in my life, for my parents, what it looks like to work diligently unto the Lord, what it looks like to work diligently in those tasks which God had placed in my parents' life. And so from a very young age, this is, uh, the top picture is me um, and and a uh, 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 trip out to the Virgin Islands uh, on, a, on a charter. Um, and you can see me as a little as a little tight on the right, maybe in, in, in darkness. There's there's a, a couple of pictures of me from this. One is is the one here, and the other one is the other part of this trip. I apparently spent uh, chewing on salty ropes because nothing's better than a rope that is filled with salt water, uh, especially <laughs> when you're a baby. Um, but uh, from from an early an early stage, I think my dad, who, who's here this morning, has been a a mentor and an, and really an idol for me and someone who I greatly admire in terms of the idea of specifically diligence in their labors and the full investment in what it takes to not just work at an occupation, but to toil at it, to fully commit oneself to accomplishing uh, what God has given them as their tasks, as their occupation, as their, their activities here on earth, both in uh, family life, in spiritual life, and in professional life. My dad's a, a cabinet maker. Um, before I was born, he and my uh, mom lived in California. After they got married, they were in California for a little while. And at, in, in California, they became friends with Sam Malou. Uh, if, if you uh, have do anything related to woodworking, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. If not, uh, Sam is one of the greatest furniture makers of all time. And after that experience and moving around a little bit, they ended up in Eastern Long Island, which is where I was born in New York. Um, and my dad continued in this profession of woodworking and woodcraft and uh, started a business in cabinet work. And so from a, an early age, as soon as I could walk around, I'd, I'd follow him around probably to his great annoyance when I was especially young. But he trained me and, 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 and helped guide me in the skills that he applied on a day-to-day -day basis and applied without reservation. That full investment of the skills of his hands applied to the work, the toils in his life. My mom uh, is, is a weaver, and uh, she also demonstrated this for me in a little bit of a different way, but very powerfully as well. Uh, my mom um, 
before I was born would weave fabrics for the fashion industry in New York City, and so she'd do like these custom custom fabrics that would be turned into into like a fancy dresses that would go up and down the runway and those sorts of things. And 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 when I was born, she moved out of this role, and um, she she also wove tapestry throughout this time, and, and started teaching college at the local university. And shortly after that, um, I started to become homeschooled. And so her shift of her efforts, her shift of her toils, her shift of her earthly labor from her activities towards investing all of that in myself and my sister, in our education, in becoming the guide for us, is a sacrificial step that she took, but one that has been massively impactful for me in my life and uh, has really enabled me to... um, uh, do the stuff that I've been able to do in terms of academics. It, it opened up that door for me to explore uh, science and to also um, grow, grow it, grow it as as uh, a, a child of God and grow as uh, a professional as well. And so, a couple of other pictures. Me, me on the. This is a, a, a canal boat trip in the United Kingdom when I'm a little bit older. It's me and my cousin and my dad opening up a lock. And then on the top right is, uh, as, as we're, we're looking at my teenage years and speaking of toils, toiling, uh, another toiling that I think my dad Tom would probably strongly agree with is, is toiling with me during these teenage years um, and in raising me and, and, and helping to uh, continue to reinforce uh, scripture in my life. Uh, that's me with my sister and uh, cousins as well in the top right picture. So, <laughs> moving from this, I have only one slide that, that, that's this boring, but um, I, I am now professor and chair at the chemistry, so, so at an early age, I actually started college at uh, 15 and began to be interested in, in science, but really didn't understand how I could pursue a career in science. Um, the, the degrees are not important, but I want to highlight the people who were important in my life during that time. John, on the top right over here, um, was... The first person who I had as a mentor who was incredibly, um, who actually believed in me. He, he uh, um, is a naturopathic chemist, and so as an undergraduate, I didn't really know how to pursue a career in science, and so John um, uh, took me under his wing and basically guided uh, a lot of what my next steps would be. And he was incredibly impactful as a guide for me, as, as a guide for me as a young researcher to begin to understand how to pursue a career in science. Um, I did my graduate work at Yale, which is where I met my wife, and then my postdoctoral advisors, Bonnie and Marty. And I just want to point out uh, Bonnie as one of the most uh, enthusiastic, most excited scientists I'd ever met, um, and she is an amazing mentor for me as well. Marty, uh, I like to call Marty Yoda, because he has this really powerful way of, of seeing uh, what is best for you professionally, and then just subtly making you think that it was your idea all along when, when, when he's, when he's uh, incredibly impactful and, and wise in his, in his uh, guidance in terms of professional life. And, and Dave, I had the opportunity to train with during my sabbatical, uh, after uh, post-tenure sabbatical, um, and, and is one of the most generous, humble, but uh, one of those people who you walk in the room and is just like, 
wow, that person is really scary. Like there's a power to the intelligence. You can just feel the uh, genius uh, as you enter the room. So Dave is with with that com combination of humility and 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 down to earth nature and and brilliance. And so. Um, all of my mentors have been incredibly impactful in my life, have, have contributed substantial meaning to me in my, in my life, and I certainly wouldn't be here without the combined efforts of all these people. And, and also, briefly to note, just to, to throw out the, the high-level stuff, so John is, uh, uh, he, he, uh, is one of the preeminent natural products chemists uh, and received Lifetime Achievement Award for this. Um, uh, Marty has won the, the ACS a uh, Cope Scholar Award, which is the highest award given by the American Chemical Society. Bonnie, uh, in, in uh, two years ago or last year, won the Wolf Prize, which is second only to the Nobel Prize. And so she's w widely recognized for her contributions to science. And Dave, on the bottom right, uh, won the Nobel Prize uh, two years ago. And so this is an incredible group of people who I've had an opportunity to be guided by. And these individuals are profoundly impactful and meaningful in my life. And so, we'll come to this point. My parents, deeply impactful. Professional mentors, meaningful. So how does that all connect with where I introduce? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I might be wondering, I might have completely lost my mind. Possible, but not in, not on this one. But I think these two truths that human effort is meaningless, I see as a truth. <clears throat> that my parents were incredibly meaningful and, and poured value into my life in a way that I cannot describe. True. And so how do we take these two things and rectify these seemingly incompatible truths? And this is another slide that I'm going to have to force myself to get through because I, well, I'll be here till 10 o'clock and we'll go straight to play pickleball, um, which I'm not going to do to you. But I, I think there's one, one really, really key thing that can help us start to think about this. And I think, I think when, we, when we think about meaning, what is important is to think about the directionality of meaning. And so it is fully valid for me to say that my mentors, my parents, poured meaning into my life. And another way of putting this is that as the recipient, the definition or the ascription of meaning or value is an ascription or definition that can be made from the recipient of the works or toil, not by the laborer themselves. So my life, if we flip this around to instead of looking at those who have toiled and labored on my behalf, I can ascribe meaning to them. But if we look at me, my existence, and I start to ascribe value or meaning to myself as relates to others, that's where the break comes. That ascription of meaning is invalid. I may be meaningful or valuable in this lived experience, but the ascription of meaning doesn't come from me. The ascription of meaning comes from the one who I work for, the one who I labor on the behalf of, 
And very possibly the ascription of that meaning may come from people in this lived experience. Like I was just describing for my parents, for my mentors. But I can't ascribe meaning to myself. I, w- I was meaningful in that. Right? That's just a step to saying, I define, I am judge of my own meaning. I am the one who decides whether I am meaningful or not. Which is just a small step to say, I'm God, I get to make the decisions. I am God unto myself. I get to make the decisions of when I'm meaningful or when I'm valuable or what my value and meaning is. The ascription of value or meaning to lived experience comes from the recipient of that. And while the recipient of that, while that ascription of value or meaning can come in an earthly context, who ultimately do we work for? Where does the description or meaning come from? We see here in Colossians, the verse is up there again. And so our meaning, the value of our life, we look to find that by either self-describing it, or we seek it out from people around us. But in doing that, we're missing what Colossians has told us. There's only one place where any value or any meaning to our lived experience can be ascribed by or from. We find that in Colossians. And it's not from us. So I said my, my wife and I, we met in graduate school. Uh, my father-in-law and brother-in-law are here as well. Uh, and so we met at Yale. And actually, uh, there's, there's a, a great story about our how... Uh, illogical it was that we would come together at, at Yale. Actually, Yale was for both of us a second choice. Um, and so the fact that we even went to Yale was was wild. And then we ended up we ended up getting married. Um, I have uh, three beautiful children: Myla, Caden, and Atley. And um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over the the, the story of, of uh, how how we met, but it, but it's a good one. Hopefully, I can tell you some more. I want to jump into, Pastor Dave is going through Romans, and there's a, there's a section of Romans, Romans 9, that really stood out to me uh, and, and describes lived experience. And so in this, in this portion of Romans 9, we see this contrast between vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And, and when we look at uh, this verse, and, I, and I'll, to, to, for complete disclosure, the majority of sermons and commentaries, uh, as Tom introduced, I have an hour and 15-minute commute, so I listen to a lot of podcasts and sermons on my commute. Um, the majority of discussions of this verse that I've heard focus on the eternal aspects of Paul's writing. So, so in other words, they take that first section, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and they make it vessels of wrath prepared for eternal destruction. And so they're describing the eternal uh, interpretation or the eternal view that Paul is capturing here. Um, and, and I'd like for a moment to, and I don't know, I don't know that this is right. I have no, I have no, no uh, credentials or any sort of uh, spiritual or, or other reasons for you to, for you to take, take me, take, take me up on this, other than just as a thought experiment. But I'd like us to look at this as a lived 
experience as opposed to an eternal experience. So vessels of wrath prepared for destruction versus vessels of mercy in the context of our lived experience. Now, one really quick reason why I feel like it's not unreasonable to view this as Paul describing our lived experiences is one, in Ephesians, he also talks about uh, children of wrath, and so he uses this sort of uh, a phrase related to this, referring to our lived experience, not to our eternal experience. And so in terms of eternal experience, yes, I believe God, I am a vessel of mercy by grace in Christ for eternal glory. But in terms of lived experience, can we look at Paul's writing and see uh, some components of that? And I, I think the answer is yes. Say, there's a, a reason right out of the verse is that we see that God has patience with vessels of wrath. And the reason for his patience is to make known the riches of his glory. Who is he making known the riches of his glory to? Because if this is an eternal decision, someone dies. God, as ultimate judge and arbiter, identifies them as vessel of wrath or vessel of glory. And is, he, is that decision made known to me in my lived experience? No, I don't know. Those who are in eternity, they may know. They may see the glory of God made known to them based upon the eternal destruction or eternal glory. But it's not made known to me. And Paul is really clear throughout all of Romans in Romans 1, he's talking about the glory of God has been made known for all time to who? To all mankind. To us in this lived experience. I look at this and say, well, if, he, if God is making known his patience, to, making known the riches of his glory, he's making it known to us. And so this is something that I should have known to me in my lived experience. I'm going to jump to another section of Romans. So in, in Ephesians, Paul also speaks to children of wrath. But I want to look at this section in Romans 8. So this is a description where Paul is talking about our lived experience as children of God and co-heirs with Christ. And then Paul follows this up with a series of contrasting statements in verse 18, 19, 20, and 21. Four beautiful verses that describe a contrast between two things. It's a contrast between suffering and glory in 18, waiting and revelation, futility and hope, bondage and freedom. And I've marked out my uh, table headings here for a second. And I just want to ask you, which one of these columns relates to a vessel of wrath? Which would be descriptive of a vessel of wrath? Is a vessel of wrath described by suffering, waiting, futility and bondage? Is a vessel of wrath described by glory, revelation, hope, freedom. And so Paul's description here of a vessel of wrath earlier and these lived experiences of us in this life as co-heirs with Christ have two column headings. They're not vessel of wrath and vessel of glory. They're present experience. Our lived experience is here. How many put vessel of wrath on that column? My lived experience is as a vessel of wrath in the present, awaiting future glory. In line with this, two years ago, my son died. He died of nothing. Uh, well, that's, uh, he, uh, he died of nothing known to modern medicine or science. Uh, so officially, 
he died of uh, sudden, unexplained death. Now, uh, Atlee died on a Wednesday. Uh, and it was about this time of year, right at the beginning of my fall semester. So a busy time for me, as is usually the case at the beginning of the semester. On, uh, on, on, on Monday, um, Atlee had been in daycare, and he, um, as, as any of you who have sent your kids to daycare, you know it's a giant germ pit. So he had had every single, every single thing ever. So he came, he, the week before, on Saturday and Sunday, he had a sniffly nose. He was just getting to the point where he was, he was cool with you blowing his nose. Like Kleenexes weren't the world's most epic torture devices that had ever been created. And, and he'd actually reach for a Kleenex and he'd want you to put it to his nose and he'd blow his nose. And uh, so he was getting that, oh yeah, this, this feels better. I, I, like, I, like, I like being able to breathe through my nose again. And on, um, on, on Monday, he finally cleared that. Like he was running around, he was a goofball. I was able to come home early from work on Monday and I made butter chicken. Uh, butter chicken curry, which was Atlee's favorite meal. Actually, his favorite may have been chicken, may have been veggie korma, but my my girls they grew into a love of the spices and uh, flavor, the bold flavor of curry. Atlee loved it from day one, and what he especially loved was naan. On, on Monday night, we the girls and I we would hold up a napkin and like sort of sneak bites of naan because if he got a glimpse of even the corner of that bread, you were sharing some of your naan with Atlee. So I got much less than my fair share of naan uh, that evening um, because it was always a bite for me, a bite for Atlee um, as we as we finish our naan. Um, on Tuesday, I, I had I had a long day of work. I was giving, and this was you know near the post-COVID time, so we we're still doing virtual seminars. And I ended up um, giving a seminar in uh, California, which had an 8 p.m. start time, East Coast time, and so I gave that from work. I got home at 11:30, and uh, Heidi said, you know, Adley wasn't feeling really good today. He's kind of tired and worn out. He's he's up he's up in his bed. He's been waking up and crying, and then going back down. You want to go? You can go stay the night. And so I said, I, I don't want to wake him up. Um, and so I let him sleep. I, I quickly made myself a dinner, and he didn't wake up during that time. I went to bed. The next morning, I had a 6 a.m., so I, I, had to, I had to get in, or I had to leave at 6 to get into work. Um, and at 7.15, 7.30, I was just getting to work, and I got a call from Heidi. She said, uh, Adley's not breathing. The police are here now, and you need to come home. So I turned around, and she started driving home. And um, five minutes later, I, I called, called my boss and uh, canceled classes and cleared, cleared my schedule. And, and um, five minutes later, Heidi calls again. She's like, uh, the police are saying, go straight to the hospital. The ambulance has come. They've taken him away. And um, uh, you, need, you need to be here now. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm like physically an hour and 15 minutes away. Uh, but I, I'm coming right now. I'll be there in an hour and 15 minutes. And so. Um, the, the, you know, the, 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 the police had said, can you, can you have anyone come right now? Someone needs to be with you. you get your husband here. I guess so. so I called uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Vinny, and said, Vinny, uh, can you get the boys on the bus and can you send your wife, Kristen, uh, to, to uh, St. Mary's? Um, Adley, uh, Heidi's there, and Adley's got in. Just someone there for an hour. I'll, I'll be there in an hour, but someone, someone please send, send someone over. Um, and so Vinny sent his wife over and, and prayed with me on the drive home. 
and I drive a lot and, and usually there's podcasts or a lot of times I'll sit and talk to the steering wheel. I'll do my, I'll plan my next presentation or like I, like I, for, for, for this, I was talking through these um, and, and I would really only get through slide one. So I'm glad I've gotten past slide one. So, um, but during that drive home, I drove in silence and, and I, I didn't really think about it until I, I stopped to put this together. Um, it wasn't completely in silence, and, and I remember that there was one prayer that I said over and over and over again, and I, I don't know, I might have said it a hundred times because I had no idea what was going on, and fully and completely powerless to do anything, even to comfort my own wife, like even to just be there with my wife. I couldn't do that because I'm in a stupid car driving down 295. And the prayer that I said, which I, which, um, prayer that I said is, uh, again and again, uh, God, not my will, but your will be done. And as, and I, I, as I was thinking about it for this, it struck me that that's a horrible prayer to pray. I mean, who prays that over their own son? God, not my will, but yours be done. What? Like, I feel like my prayer should have been, God, my will be done. This is my son. This isn't your choice. This is my boy. And that never crossed my mind. And I wonder what type of person just says about their own son, God, your will be done. And, and, and I feel like that's what brings me back to my parents and that early role model of them as working unto God. Our labors, our toil, our life is unto God, not unto us. And somewhere deep in me, even though it hadn't reached my mind yet, Somewhere deep in me was that understanding that this is a path that I am walking and it is not my desires that are to be accomplished. It is not what I want in this moment to be accomplished. But this is all unto God. I have a... Uh, uh couple more and I'll, I'll go through these quickly so we can we can go in many directions on on this point um, talking about fairness Matthew there's a parable that speaks to fairness the parable of the day laborers um, the point of the parable is that no one receives less than what they deserve all of us as vessels of wrath we view this perspective as we deserve everything. We are God. I am God. No one deserves, no one will receive less than they deserve. Some may receive more. Some God may bless, but no one will receive less than deserve. We can speak about logic. We can speak about understanding. And then I, I've already cut those slides out, and so we're not going not to speak to those points. Uh, on the, 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 the topic of, of, uh, of depression. Isn't this a depressing way to view life? Isn't this a depressing way to go through life? 
And the answer to that is yes, and I do want to briefly speak to that. So there's, there's, a, there's a, another little anecdote um, from Martin Luther, uh, the Reformation pastor, 95 Theses, Church of Wittenberg, that, that Martin Luther. Martin Luther uh, was the father of that Reformation period. And, and one of the core components that he wrestled with was understanding that we receive salvation by grace in Christ. There are no indulgences. You don't need to check off this list of boxes. That was the break point between the Catholic Church and the Reformation movement. You can't earn it. It's not in you. It is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. That was Martin Luther's core component. And if we, like Martin Luther, really think about what it means that we receive blessing by grace alone, if we really thought about that, we'd probably be really depressed too. Martin Luther, based on his writings and the writings of contemporaries, spent a lot of his time deeply depressed. Understanding that grace is the only means by which I receive eternal glory and I am a vessel of wrath worthy of destruction. I have earned nothing but destruction, yet I am blessed to receive more than that. That is a depressing concept, and there's nothing I can do about it. And and one of one of one of the stories from Martin's wife, Martin was married. His his, his wife's name was was Katrina. Do you know that? Do you know this? So Martin Luther was married. Um, he was married to a nun. Katrina was uh, well a former nun. Marriage is obviously a little bit of a problem in that. Um, so so he was she was a former nun. And actually, the way he met his wife, Martin and his group of people helped her escape her her convent with a series of other nuns, and she escaped the convent in a fish barrel. That was his solution. So clearly he had a really good strategy for, for getting these nuns out of, out of the convent that they were in. And so, so uh, Martin didn't want to get married, actually. And, and Katie didn't want to get married either. And so, so when Martin's writing in some of his letters about his marriage to Katie, who was 16 years his junior, um, he, he writes, uh, uh, I eventually decided to be married because it would please my father, his earthly father, it would rile the Pope, it would make the angels it would make the angels rejoice and it would make the devils cry so if any young man comes up and asks me to marry my daughters and gives me any of those four reasons we got problems <laughs> but his marriage to Katie was, 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 a, was a beautiful marriage she was an incredible wife and supported him in, in many ways and he, he wrote, writes about her her name is Catherine he writes about her lovingly as Katie um, and describes his experience with her they had um, six children his, his second daughter they were definitely not free from, from turmoil in their life his second daughter dies as an infant and his, his uh, third child um, uh, daughter died when she was 11 um, and so there's one story though and, and Martin was deeply depressed he was moping about he was just miserable heavy with the weight of what he was experiencing in life and, and I would like to believe heavy with the weight of this understanding of grace and his insufficiency and his meaninglessness and, and so his friends come up to him and they, they, in his writings he says they tell him to go out to the country for some clean air and I love that turn of phrase because that's something that I say I just need a breath I go out to the garage. I just need a breath. I need a breath of fresh air. I go hunting. I just need to breathe some fresh air. So Martin's friends send him to the country for a weekend to get some clean air. Martin comes back from this weekend, miserable as ever. 
fully depressed. Wait, he's moping about the church, he's moping about the house, and he comes into the living room, and Katie and all the kids were set up in the living room, wearing head-to-toe black. Martin walks into his living room, says, Oh, God, Katie, don't tell me who died. His wife looks up at him and says, Martin, haven't you heard? God is dead. Martin, for of course, my husband would not be walking around such if he knew that he served a living God. And his face lights up. Martin laughs, smiles, and says, Katie, why you've got Go now. Take off your black. Is it depressing? The less than. Yes. But do we serve a living God inside of the less than? We are less than. So how should we live in this experience? And we can go to a number of sections. The Beatitudes. Look at who is blessed. Blessed are the meaningless. Blessed are the meaningless. Blessed are the meaningless. Blessed are those who are less than. The whole list. Thankless. How many of those characteristics are characteristics of those who are less than? So, to conclude, I'll come back to Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite three verses or sections out of Ecclesiastes, to define the paradox, the irresolvable paradox of meaning. What I have seen is it is good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of our toils. Which one toils under the sun in the few days of his life that God has given him? For this is his lot. This is his award from God, his portion from God. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and powers, enjoy them. Accept this award, this portion, this lot from God, and rejoice in our toils. These are the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Pray that God blesses all of you.